Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Welcome to the Ortho Joe Show, a joint production of the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery and Ortho Evidence. In our world, orthopedic research is king and current topics from our respective publications are analyzed weekly. Here is Mohit Bhandari from OrthoEvidence and Mark Swinkowski from the Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. Well, good morning, Mo. Uh, morning. I am traveling, uh, but I do have my cup of joe. Uh, I just don't have the Ortho Joe mug like you do. I've got my branded content, as always, yeah. always. And uh, as I introduce our very special guest, for this edition of Ortho Joe, I want to uh, assure Dr. Richards that he will be receiving a uh, custom Ortho Joe mug to enjoy your favorite warm uh, beverage. So I, it's my uh, great I pleasure. Hope, I, I hope I don't have to pay the customs fee on that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I might have well, to declare its worth. <laughs> it's it's priceless. So I don't know how you do that. But. So our, our guest today is Dr. Robin Richards uh, of Toronto, uh, a native of Guelph, uh, Ontario, farm boy, as I understand it right, uh, has had many leadership positions uh, in orthopedic surgery and surgery uh, departments, uh, the chief of orthopedics at St. Mike's, and the, then moved his career to Sunnybrook, uh, chief of surgery. Um, and also major leadership position. He, he at one time took over as a very young orthopedic surgeon, a, a disaster in its making of the uh, World Congress of Orthopedic Surgery that happens every six years. It was due to happen in Toronto and it was a fiscal disaster. And Robin as a very young orthopedic surgeon took it over and salvaged the whole thing. But also major leadership positions in the Ontario Medical Association. That that's what I want to get into. But so Robin is a leader of leaders, I would say, uh, and he does it by uh, very detailed preparation uh, and uh, understanding who he's negotiating with, and with the the most dry wit of any person I've ever seen. Also, and the last point I would make is that he's a promoter of others. I believe. The good Dr. Bandari was at one point a student uh, under Dr. Richards. So uh, this is our very special guest, uh, Robin Richards. So Robin, uh, can you just uh, give the, the listeners a sense of what was going on in orthopedics uh, in the province of Ontario when you were dealing uh, with, with issues that, that, uh, that you found creative ways to solve? Uh, well, there was a there was a new government, and um, they. What was were, the year? What was what was the year, Robin? Oh, it's in the in the nineties. Uh, okay. I, I can't remember the exact year, but it was a new government. It was called the Common Sense Revolution, and they got a majority. Um, so, in you know, it's a parliamentary system. So, if you got a majority, you can do anything you want. So, 
they put um, oh, they took away uh, instead of giving us fee increases, they supported our malpractice payments. Uh, they took that away. They put a cap on um, a clawback system. If you made over a certain amount of fees, they start clawing the clawing it back. Uh, it was sort of an austerity thing that uh, made it almost. Um, impossible to practice, especially if you were in a high-risk specialty like uh, obstetrics, uh, orthopedics, uh, neurosurgery, or general surgery, because we had really high malpractice uh, uh, premiums in relation to the other uh, medical, um, well, it's all together as GPs and specialists, so it's all one big pot. So we... Um, we it, it had a differential effect on uh, specialists versus uh, family doctors to the extent that um, I started looking around in other um, countries because uh, I, I couldn't see I, I could sort of raise four kids and uh, do what I wanted to do with this uh, huge clawback situation. So the more you work, the less you got paid. It was just unacceptable. And um, I, I've always uh, thought that you should never accept the unacceptable. So it was unacceptable. That's that's how it started. And then, um, you know, we didn't really know what to do. So we, um, the uh, Orthopedic Association had only about 300 members. So we pulled the members to see how far they, you know, how upset they were and how far they were willing to go. And uh, then we hired a, a lawyer to try and figure out what we could do and what we couldn't do. Uh, we were quite selective in who we hired. It was a lady who was specialized in, um, um, at that time, there was a review committee that if the government said that you overcharged, they would have a review and claw back, you know, funds, your fees. And this was very unpopular. In fact, it eventually was dissolved because um, a physician eventually committed suicide because of uh, he got an adverse finding. But we hired we hired a lady that specialized in that kind of uh, work. Uh, we had to use her quite judiciously because she was like a uh, pit bull terrier. And then we uh, formed something uh, that colloquially was called the Goon Squad. So. Um, the sections of general surgery, uh, orthopedics, obstetrics, and neurosurgery got together and decided that um, we couldn't accept the situation. So that's sort of how it started. Um, this was without any help from the medical association who thought it was sort of totally okay to work with the government at that time. That's and how did it turn out? Um, well, it, uh, it was a six, 12 months of uh, pretty intense uh, activity. It was very time consuming. It was um, a whole lot of meetings. And um, eventually, um, you know, we met with the uh, leadership of the medical association. And I, I sort of uh, would always take someone with me that had a cooler head and play sort of good cop, bad cop. And Eventually, I, I said to the CEO and the president of the medical association that there was going to be a, a wrecking ball uh, rolling down the street, which the legislature and at that time, the medical association were on the same street. It's changed now. They're, actually, you could see the OMA office that, uh, from the uh, legislature. I said, 
we were getting this wrecking ball. We had the wrecking ball together and we were gonna roll it. We just hadn't decided whether we were gonna roll it at the legislature or roll it at the medical association office. And if, if, if they didn't believe me, I knew that the obstetrics um, uh, leader was sitting outside because I saw him on the way in. And I knew that they cared a whole lot more about obstetrics than they did about orthopedics. And um, I said, if they didn't believe me, they could talk to the next uh, chap that was coming in. And make a long story short, they um, agreed to um, um, demand a, a negotiation with the government because the biggest thing the government had did did was uh, rip up our agreement. Like we had no agreement. So that was probably in a public healthcare system, which ours is in spades. Uh, if you don't have an agreement, you've got, you know, really nothing. You're just a slave. So eventually we started having forums. Like today on the um, uh, radio, national radio show, they're having a forum in Victoria, people talking about healthcare. It's like deja vu mm -hmm. all over again because there's a, a crisis again. It's a, uh, things are in a horrible situation here. And uh, so we started having those kind of things. It got into the newspaper and... Um, Eventually, public opinion turned around that it was uh, that the um, the government was causing the problem rather than the, the doctors. So we got the public on our side, and to make um, a really long to bring it to the conclusion, um, the health minister, the premier's office, called me. So, well, what what can be done? I said it was all cryptic. I said, well, you know what the the problem is. So if that problem goes away, then we can talk. And so about three days later, the health minister um, uh, took a walk. Like he, um, I said, I'd believe it when I saw it in a, in a photograph or a video. So he, he took, uh, he was sort of, it wasn't replaced, but he uh, stepped aside for three or four months while the a deal was re, was negotiated. We, we had a good deal that lasted quite a while, actually. So that's, it was uh, the best of times and the worst of times. So. <laughs> if I could just jump in and ask a, a, a bit more broader question, which is, you know, you've held a ton of leadership roles um, throughout your career, and I can't imagine there aren't a bunch of early career, some mid-career, um, you know, folks will come up to you, Robin, and ask a little bit about, you know, taking on leadership roles and insights you have about them. But what do you tell someone earlier in their career who I guess has either an illusion, delusion, or maybe they're appropriately correct in saying that I really want to focus on administration and leadership as my, you know, focus. How do you guide them in that role? Or do you uh, dissuade them? I don't even know. Maybe you dissuade them. I don't know, but. <laughs> that's hard to, to answer. I mean, um, I think the number one thing in surgery in general is, uh, to be a leader, you, you've got to walk the shop floor. So I learned that really early on because in the summers when I was in university, I was a steel worker. I was a card carrying member of the United Steelworkers of America. And um, we had a union hall and, you know, you, <laughs> we had, there was management and then there was the shop floor. And um, um, I mean, a, a good, um, a good leader in the, that factory environment was um, someone from management who actually would walk around the shop floor once in a while. So if you want to be a surgeon 
and a leader, uh, that's great because surgeons need leaders um, for sure. But uh, I think step one is to uh, walk the shop floor. And then step two is to, um, uh, since you're walking the shop floor, you sort of will know what is needed. Like there's different kinds of surgeons. There's academic surgeons, community surgeons, surgeon scientists. Uh, uh, but step one is you got to know what uh, is needed and you've got to have goals. And then you've got to, um, I mean, leadership is sort of like hitting the sweet spot. You want to be um, sort of on one end of the bell curve, but you don't want to be right out in that real tapered part where, <laughs> where people think you're uh, out to lunch or um, inappropriate. So um, that's kind of a farm boy answer, but sorry for that. No, no, not at all. In fact, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example that just happened. Uh, two days ago. So there's, uh, you know, a mid-career surgeon and, uh, you know, really aspiring to do uh, clinical trials and, you know, has got a protocol and, and basically wants to do a multinational study, but has made no real attempt to contact um, colleagues in other places, has made no real contact to go visit people. And I think it gets back to, and, and, and by the way, the study's failing and, you know, they come and ask, and I guess you're right. That's exactly what uh, is the analogy. He hasn't in this particular case, it's a him, but he hasn't taken time um, to walk the floor, as you would say, metaphorically, get out there in the community, meet with people, understand why they're not getting involved in the problems and uh, do that. And I think you get sometimes you get degrees, you get all sorts of um, insights. And, you know, we, we send a myriad of surgeons to, uh, to leadership training and they come back with a host of insights. But I think the bigger challenge for them is what you've stated is the ability to communicate those insights in a way that connects with people. So that's actually a very, very helpful. Is there ever a time, Robin, I'll jump one more, Mark, because I have one more question asked. Is there ever a time um, where you would dissuade somebody? I mean, truly dissuade them from saying, taking it on. In other words, you know, everyone goes on about thinking about how great it is to lead because they have this, you know, fantasy about how, you know, how it would be great when I'm a leader, or when I'm the chief or when I'm the chair or whatever. Are there moments where you would say, well, you know, there are some real drawbacks to leadership and here they are? Well, that's the kind of conversation you'd have to have uh, in private. And that was one of the best parts about being surgeon in chief at Sunnybrook for 11 years was uh, sort of recruitment and retention. I, I met every staff member once a year and um, it, it was uh, amazing to me how far, uh, roughly 60 staff. So it was amazing to me how far some people went in that time period and how um, some people didn't go anywhere or regressed. So um, I, I don't know that there's much uh, downside to leadership, except you have to be realistic. You, you have to, uh, have the credentials, you have to have uh, set goals, uh, you have to have good interpersonal skills. I mean, you, you talk about your uh, colleague about a multinational uh, study. I mean, one of my big biggest regrets in leadership was uh, I was chair of the research committee of the American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons. And um, I, I sort of went around, uh, well, Mark, a stakeholder analysis, I went around to leaders throughout uh, North America to try and get them on side for our um, American Shoulder and Elbow Surgeons 
assessment uh, technique uh, or outcome analysis, uh, which, which was supported and adopted. But that that was um, that was a big uh, big change. I should should have gone worldwide. You weren't around then. I had no idea that if I if I had it to do again, <laughs> I would have gone uh, around the world and got it to worldwide shoulder novel assessment because we're still grappling with the too many assessment systems. So that was a mistake. So I, that's not a very good answer to your question. But I, I think, I mean, the big, the big, there's only so much time and only so much energy. So um, I I don't think there's any point doing leadership unless it's um, in your gut, right? You got to feel it in your gut. You, you got to uh, uh, so say that, that, you know, I feel something needs to change and um and and you got to feel that you you uh, it's probably best to go around and ask a few people to talk to a few people seek seek their advice so I, I don't know what advice you gave to your colleague but uh uh it sounds like there's there's no um he's it, it, not you know you got to get the stakeholder you got to uh, do the stakeholder analysis before you try and move forward yeah, and I would say it becomes priorities, right? The priority is you're going to have to give up something to get to get something. Realities. I think there's this perception yeah. that I want at all. You'll have, you know, and I think the expectations on a lot of faculty coming in um, to academic centers per se is that they're expected to, you know, lead. They're expected to be top tier educators. They're expected to be excellent surgeons. They're expected to do research. And the reality is, it just it's not gonna, it just doesn't happen right it's it's rather rare to have someone being able to do all of those things and so it's a choice um and this individual just was having to make a decision a tough decision about the choice how much energy was he willing to put into this is what you put in is what you're going to get out and that was kind of the discussion but yeah, yeah no, nothing's easy i mean we uh, appoint people with a um, memorandum of, of agreement they're either uh surgeon teachers, surgeon scientists, uh, uh, surgeon investigators. But three to five years after you're appointed, there's a continuing appointment review. And um, if you commit to something and don't follow through, then you know not everybody makes their continuing appointment. Um, so you have to, I think, uh, a junior person maybe needs uh, needs a mentor, needs someone to counsel them on what, what's realistic. like. I'm going to be a leader. Well, uh, uh, you know, that's a sort of a chicken or egg thing. I don't know. I mean, what, what's that mean exactly? So talk is cheap and deeds count. Right. That's fair. So, Mo, if it's okay with you, I'm going to take the last two uh, questions. Uh, the first one will be clinical, Rob, and I think it's rather straightforward. But the last one will be about your role as the editor of JVJS Open Access with Ang Lee. But the clinical question as a shoulder and elbow surgeon, what is the biggest change that happened in, let's say, shoulder surgery during your career? The most positive thing that happened? <laughs> well, I thought you might ask me that. So I thought you'd ask me, what are the biggest changes, uh, period? Uh -huh. So they're, they're really not that Many. Uh, I mean, when I started, low friction arthroplasty had just uh, started, uh, so that was a really good thing. And then, um, as far as uh, trauma goes, the intermedullary nail came along. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, and you, you, you are too. But 
I, well, I shouldn't say that, but maybe you are too. No, I am. <laughs> of uh, beds full of uh, guys in traction and other yeah. beds full of girls in traction. Yeah. The I Am Nail was a, a big thing. And then came sort of uh, outcome, um, uh, an, an out, you know, patient-oriented outcome analysis and, and evidence-based medicine, multinational studies. But for shoulder, um, yeah. uh, there's really only been one thing and it's um it's got to be well maybe two i guess uh well one really i mean one would be arthroscopy but really arthroscopy is just doing the same operation through the scope that you did open but the real big change has been for sure the reverse i mean the reverse uh, shoulder arthroplasty i mean why didn't I think of that? I mean, <laughs> I mean that, that's just completely changed uh, shoulder surgery. You don't, I remember the first one I did, I couldn't reduce the thing. It was too tight. And the, uh, the resident said, and I did go to a course before, so it wasn't like I tried to wing it. And the resident who'd been up all night nailing a femur or something, he, he said, well, and he had to go home at noon hour because of the rules. He said, uh, Dr. Richards, you don't need a rotator cuff for these things to work, right? And he says, I said, no, no, you don't need it. I said, he said, well, why don't you just cut all the rotator cuff? And so I did that, and then it reduced, and the, the lady was fine. It's like a miracle. <laughs> so so it's, uh, it's a bit of a good news, bad news thing, because in Canada, uh, you know, we're, um, it's a zero-sum game, they call it, but it's not really a game. But, uh, I mean, the budget's, uh, there's never enough money. So reverse is twice as expensive. So when I started doing these reverses, uh, the hospital actually stopped me doing arthroplasties for a while. It's too expensive. Yeah. So I went to the CEO's office with uh, that um, book, The Shoulder. You know, it's in two volumes. I, I put both volumes on his desk. I said, you know, Mr. CEO or Dr. CEO, there's only one person that's got uh, multiple chapters in both volumes. <laughs> and he's standing here in the room with you. And he looked at the book and said, there's a book on the shoulder? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's great. So uh, that's been, a, to me, a great change because it's reliable and... Um, people don't have nearly as many uh, uh, sort of useless or semi-useless operations that don't work very well because the reverse works pretty well. So that's- So big. last question, uh, as the editor, uh, uh, co-editor with Ang Lee of JBJS Open Access, I think it's year five now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I'm not sure, it's been a while. Yeah, it's, it's been a while. What, what are your thoughts about uh, how we're progressing? And you, you know, you always do, but tell the truth. How are we well, doing? Well, what it'd be for other people to say. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the goal uh, when we started was to publish the second tier of uh, manuscripts that almost got published in the, um, what's your current term? The flagship journal, is that, yeah. is that it? Yeah. Uh, so, um, um, it's, it's been um, <clears throat> sort of steady, I think. It hasn't been catastrophic uh, um, or not, you know, it hasn't been a huge growth. I mean, the 
the journal, boy, I can remember the first time I saw a journal was at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton in the um, mid 1970s. It was when the journal had that soft uh, cover. Uh, when you look at those days to the journal now, the journals, you know, because I, I, I'm not just involved with OA, I also review for the flagship for Case Connector, look mm -hmm. at reviews. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I, I can't really say, Mark. I mean, I, I look down the list of the things that I, I, Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery, right? Surgery. So I, I look uh, at the articles we publish, and I think they're interesting and hopefully relevant. And if we can um, publish them, whereas they weren't um, going to be published before, that's a good thing. And I think the overall good thing is that the journal has such a suite of um, I mean, it's very extensive what's available. It's, it's a huge difference in, in the last five or 10 years. So, I mean, always just part of that. I, I think the big change has been the expansion of the uh, suite of um, uh, information, including for the um, the orthopedic assistance. It's a big thing I know in the US and to a lesser extent in Canada, but it's amazing what's available. It's fantastic. Well, Robin, thanks for spending the morning uh, with us. Uh, and I will note to the audience that in addition to being a, 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 a world-class leader, Robin is a world-class fisherman uh, who pursues the great fish all around the globe. And he's the reason why he's dressed up is because he has a, I don't know, some fisherman's meeting coming up. <laughs> so uh, Robin, uh, uh, you will receive the, uh, high, I guess, uh, priceless Ortho Joe mug. And we we will cover we'll cover the customs for you. So <laughs> go catch the big one at the meeting tonight if, if you would. Okay. Well, thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. <laughs> oh, it was great. Thanks so much. Have a, have a great day. You too. Yeah. Bye bye. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.